I was astounded again by the secrecy of the Cuyahoga Health Board when it comes to schools with coronavirus. That's story number one on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from the team here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Warnowski is off today, but I am happy to have my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston in the conversation. I'm Chris Quinn. Let's begin. 19 students and four faculty in at least eight suburban Cleveland school districts have the coronavirus, but the Cuyahoga Board of Health is keeping the names of those districts secret. Does the board know who it works for? Why the secrecy? Laura Johnston, I'm flabbergasted. They started out the pandemic refusing to give zip code data because they said it would identify people, which was preposterous. They've been trouble every step of the way. And the day after Mike DeWine says, I want school districts to disclose when they have the coronavirus, the county health board decides there's a privacy issue. What's going on here? Yeah, this is just jaw dropping again. Um, The board says it's trying to protect privacy. It's got eight districts where there are coronavirus cases that it's looking at. It's saying it's tracking some others, but they're not saying where. So they say they are related to sports activities. So if you, you know, remember what we talked about last week, we know three of them, Strongsville, Mayfield, and North Olmstead canceled their games because of coronavirus cases. So there's three out of eight, but we don't know the other ones an unspecified number of additional cases. But this is exactly right, what you were talking about, what Mike DeWine said on Thursday, said he wanted to issue an order to force school districts to release information about these cases to the public. I don't think we've seen the order, but within 48 hours of learning a case, the schools are supposed to make it public on their website or with a news release or something, and they're supposed to notify parents in writing. And... They're supposed to tell the county health board because the state (laughs) wants to have a publicly available registry, publicly available. I just don't get it. It's hard to identify what the worst public board is in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. I mean, you got Cleveland City Council, which won't hold a real hearing about the riot. You got the the Cuyahoga County Council, which won't hold hearings about the riot. But the the COVID-19 is the biggest story of the age. It's the biggest threat to people we've had. And our health board, who we don't elect and we don't pick, has just thwarted the public interest at every damned turn. I was stunned by this. It was just that I, I nobody had told me this was coming. So I saw it when everybody else did. The headline rolls across and it's like, what? What are they thinking? And they're completely non-responsive. They, they never really address what is going on. It's very frustrating. And I don't I mean, it's not just us as the news media saying we're frustrated. I saw people posting this in my like local school Facebook page saying what is going on? Like parents, I mean, parents want to know the entire community wants to know. And they're saying, who are these people and why are they not telling us this should be very public information? They work for us. We pay them. That's the most amazing part of this. They are employed by the taxpayer. I'm a little bit surprised Armin Budish hasn't stepped in here to say, cut it the hell out. Enough of this already. I'll start replacing people. I mean, at some point, you you expect public responsiveness from a body in this critical time. And yet here we are. Well, once the order goes in, I guess we'll get it from the school districts. I bet the county health board will continue to be. Yeah, It's not like we're asking for their names or grades, right? It's just the cases. Just tell us. Well, I, I would take it a step further. It would be nice if they could tell us whether these athletes got this thing likely 
from from practicing together or if it's coincidental and they right. just happen to get it and it has nothing to do with the sport. Because if they're all getting it while they're practicing, that kind of speaks to the danger of continuing to have a a football season. But again, if you're not even going to get the districts, why would you think they would tell us how it's being transferred? <laughs> you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many Ohio voters risk getting kicked off the voter rolls if they don't do something to stay, like vote in the presidential election? Jane Cahoon, I'm still on the fence. I can't tell if Frank LaRose is trying to reduce the voter rolls or he's trying to get people to vote. But what's the number? Well, well, you do have to be fair and say he's not doing this until after the election. Okay, we need to make that crystal clear. But the number is about 116,000 people who are on this list, and they would be people who haven't voted for four years or responded to mailed notices from elections officials over like two years. And uh, so uh, these are what they call infrequent voters. So LaRose put out this list so people can see if they're on it and do something about it. You know, not only vote in the presidential election, but they could just call their local board of elections and make sure that their registration is up to date or if they need to change their address. There's there's still plenty of time before the voter registration deadline. But it is a little bit odd two months before we elect the president that the secretary of state is talking about getting people off the voter rolls. I mean, the timing is unusual enough where you have to sit back and think, <laughs> What's his game here? And I, I think there's a, as good a chance that he's trying to get people to vote. So they preserve their place on the voter rolls. There, I know there are people that believe that the that he's just trying to <laughs> make it harder for people <laughs> to vote and, and wipe them clean. But the fact that we keep talking about this is interesting. And now people can see that they're on the list. So they know either I vote this election or do something else to update my registration or I'll I'll be off the, the voter rolls. But that's a lot of people. Um, it is a is, lot of people. But when you consider, I think there's something like 8 million registered voters in the state. So uh, proportionally, I guess it's small. But, you, you know, just make no mistake about this. It's it's still a very controversial process. Voting rights activists think that there shouldn't be, you know, n- not being an active voter should not disqualify you. And, you know, that. but they are ready to like they did the last time to reach out to people and try to help them get back on the rolls. Yeah, at least he's being transparent. He's giving everybody a chance to do this. Voting advocates can go through and reach out to people. People can find their names on there. It's not like he's being secretive about it. Or they could find errors like they did the last time and get corrected. And he got criticized because there are errors, but I thought, you know, he put it out there so you would find right, errors if right. he wants to fix them. So we'll have to see. Are we yeah. going to, is Rich Exner back? Is he going to put together a searchable <laughs> database? He's back, and I and I will speak to him about that. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we know about the latest death at the Cuyahoga County Jail, the second in short order after the jail had gone more than a year without one? following a rash of them in 2018. Laura Johnston, the the most recent death was looking more and more like natural causes, not anything the jail did. But to have a second one just a few weeks later is, is raises a flag. Doesn't mean that there's anything bad going on, 
But what do we know? Do we know much? We don't know much. Uh, This is a 28-year-old man. He died early Sunday, about 3.45 a.m. at the county jail. His name is Devante Day, and uh, he had been at the jail since May 17th. There was no preliminary cause provided, and the spokeswoman for the county said that any final lab results might take weeks. All right. So we don't want to jump to conclusions here. It is alarming because before they had the eight deaths in, in one year a couple of years ago, they were having roughly two a year. So we've now had two in short order. So, you know, a little bit alarming, but I guess we'll have to wait and see if there's something going on. The population at the jail has started climbing again, but it's partly due to the fact that the state won't take the inmates unless they quarantine for two weeks, which is backing them up and getting them out of there. It's not really anything that the jail has done differently after they reduced their population. This week in the CLE. So do we have a better understanding now of why it's okay for school-age kids who are learning remotely to gather at daycare centers but not at their school buildings? Jen Cahoon, we asked this question a week or so ago. How is that okay? How does that not thwart the entire goal of having kids stay home to stop the spread of the virus, to put them into buildings? Emily Bamforth, our great education reporter, went deep on this one. So what was her finding? Well, her finding is that some of these places, they they have more space and fewer students than big school districts, and they can work out a model of how they can do this safely. So if they can follow the rules, you know, the distance, the masks, the sanitizing, hand washing, et cetera, and they have the space to do it, they they can do it. And as we know, and Laura Johnston will tell us, (laughs) this is a gigantic problem for working parents of children trying to learn remotely, whether those parents are working from home or, or outside the home. So the background on this is that the state recently expanded licenses for daycare facilities. So they're now allowed to not only to move up their capacity to a normal level, but they can take in school-age children who are learning remotely and accommodate them. And we've seen organizations step forward, like the Great Lakes Science Center is opening up these learning labs for kids. And the Boys and Girls Club, uh, they're opening up space for remote learners at 11 different locations. And, you know, they are going to adjust the capacity based on social distancing and all that stuff. And the CEO there says, you know, we think this has to do with scale. We've been we've been operating during the summer and that worked out fine. And we have smaller cohorts of kids and smaller operations than a big school district. So we can do it in a safe manner. And he also said, we think the risk of not doing this for our kids in communities we serve is more detrimental than not trying to do something. Okay. But let me throw in a healthy dose of skepticism here. The museum, the Boys and Girls Clubs, they're nonprofits, and they were pretty much closed down for half the year, unable to raise money, make revenue. They're they're hurting. So there's a money motive for these guys to get people in because they can fundraise or do what have you. There are also for-profit daycare centers where if they can get extra kids, it's extra money. What is the checks and balance to make sure that they're doing the masks and the social distancing and that they have enough space? Is that on the parents when they go in to make sure that the kids are safe? Is there anybody regulating this? Well, I'm sure they could report it to the health department, but I would think it is up to the parents to make sure 
they're sending their kids to a place where it's safe. I mean, Laura Johnson, are you going to send your kids? Please, to a take it away. I, I, I was just going to add to Jane's thing that I believe the state, I, I don't know exactly which department, but maybe job and family services, they, they do get overseen these daycare centers. So they get regular checks. So I, I assume that when they come to check, you know, everything else that they will check on the coronavirus precautions. Um, I am not sending my kids only because we're lucky enough that we're still working from home and we're hoping that our internet capacity and our psychological capacity can can hold out just a little bit longer uh, while the kids are at home. But I do, I mean, if you have to go to the office, you are not going to leave your seven-year-old home with a computer and say, go to school. So I think that they're parents in a really tough spot. And I, I really do salute these organizations for trying to make it work. Um, actually, Camp Christopher, where my kids spent a week this summer, was asking parents if they'd be interested. So it's not just your regular daycares. It's it's other groups, too, trying to step up and, and make this feasible. Well, I, I, I just throw this fact out there for people considering this. A new study out shows that the virus can thrive in the airways of children for as long as a month. So can I just, but there are a lot of schools that are going back. You know, there are public schools that are going back. There are a lot of private schools that are going back. So, I mean, there are kids gathering, whether it's a daycare or not. Yeah. And we will soon see what the effect of that is. We know what happened when colleges and universities opened and kids all went and drank, took their masks off, and they've had a lot of outbreaks all across the country. It's a little different with kids in regular schools. They will but, not be drinking alcohol. For a while no, but it's also I'm sure seven, we'll get all the contact tracing information to from the Board of school. Health, the Cuyahoga Board of Health, yeah, or the Ohio any, Department of Health. Yeah, there'll be no secrecy there. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Americans have so much in common: love of family, rewarding jobs, pets, hobbies. So what did we learn by exploring the reasons for why we seem so angry with each other across party lines? Laura Johnston, I get confronted by this every weekend by people who read our our platforms and come flying in accusing me of being Just a, a stooge weekend? for the left. <laughs> well, mostly comes out on the weekend. A stooge for the left, a stooge for the right. You know, I wouldn't know truth if it smacked me in the face. But I, I get some really caustic kind of notes that show this incredible anger people have with their neighbors solely because of differing political beliefs. So we set out to try and get at this a little bit. What did Evan McDonald come back with? This story by Evan is fascinating. It turns out that partisanship isn't limited to politics per se, but that divide of liberal versus conservative permeates our entire lives from what we wear to where we live to how we decorate our homes. Everything is now viewed through a partisan lens and a lot of it on social media. So for example, take leisure activities. Yoga is seen as a liberal pastime while hunting is conservative. Republicans are more likely to decorate their homes with flags and clocks, and Democrats choose art and maps. And of course, there's this rural-urban divide, which we talk about a lot on this podcast and in our newsroom, where over the last 10 years even, the number of Republicans or the percentage of people that live in rural areas more or so are becoming Republican, and in urban areas more are becoming Democrats. The clock map thing (laughs) threw me when I saw that. It's like, What is conservative about having clocks hanging up in your house? And what is liberal about a map? That that one... That one kind of threw me, but but I guess, I, guess I, I did think about it, and I was like, maybe the idea is, and these are perceptions, not necessarily, you know, 
is that that liberals are more interested in other countries and other cultures. I, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know, I, but I thought I, it was fascinating. I have both clocks and maps. So I, I know I have a flag, me? a clock. I have art. I have maps. So like I'm totally, you know, down the middle, right? I mean, I got the clothes that conservatives are more likely to wear camouflage. That the idea that liberals wear yoga pants. Well, not the guys, but you know, I I I, I didn't quite see the divide there and the geography. It, what was interesting was the the idea that people are moving to be with others that think like them. That 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 there's an intention to it, which is creating a more more divided rural urban line. Look, it was a great piece. He did a good bit of reporting, talked to a lot of people, points out that that, yes, Donald Trump is the most polarizing figure we've ever seen, but that we were becoming polarized long before him and that he's that he's not the cause of it. I've started reading the book Cast by Isabella Wilkinson, which is like the book of the year so far, and it talks a good bit about Trump in the beginning being the symptom, not the cause that America has been leading in this direction for quite some time. And Evan's story gets at a good bit of that. So can I just add one thing, this idea that these parties have become more homogenous and so that citizens who identify with, with those parties, they share many of the same ideological values. So they're not going to change their mind on abortion or racism per se. And so they're just going to cling even more tightly to those, uh, labels. And then because of social media, I think you, you obviously you talked about people moving to be closer, but our social media, we the algorithms stay the same so that we only see the people that we agree with. We're not interacting with people who don't think the same way. And we choose cable channels based on what we like. So there's just not a lot of interaction to see something from a different viewpoint. Yeah, I think in the end, years from now, social media will be looked at as one of the banes of our existence, <laughs> one of the worst things we ever came up with because it really has created isolation. Jane Cahoon, clocks or maps? <laughs> I I think we have a map somewhere. We I really love maps. I just don't remember if I have one hanging. We definitely have a clock. Okay, but let so- me say, I think during this pandemic, lots of people are wearing yoga pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the point of University Hospitals Nursing Research and Innovation Day in this time of pandemic? Jan Cahoon, this was an interesting piece Emily Bamforth put together. Hospitals are always doing special events. This one actually had a pretty interesting angle. What was it? Well, it was all virtual. This occurred on Friday. And if I could correct you, I think Evan McDonald did this story, not oh. Emily. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but, Sorry. But the idea behind this is that, you know, nurses are on the front lines and they are in a unique position to suggest ways to innovate and improve patient care. And UH says the coronavirus has been an opportunity to really accelerate that conversation because healthcare workers have needed to make quick adjustments to to adapt to the to the challenge of the pandemic, which which gave them a chance to evaluate more ways to improve patient care. Okay, was it well attended? Did we get a feel? Um, I, I I'm not sure about the attendance, but they um, they did give like awards to the nurses who came up with you know really clever things, like the winner had uh, designed like a light to for nonverbal patients to be able to 
you know, communicate when they needed help. And another student was working on something involving diabetes. And anyway, these are really, really smart kids. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. For the second time in a couple of weeks, a whole lot of people marched in front of the home of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson. Laura Johnston, how many participated Saturday and what did they want? So I guess 60 people marched to Frank Jackson's home and they demanded that he fire Officer Jose Garcia, who had fatally shot 22-year-old Desmond Franklin in April. And the protest was just days after Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost announced that he was going to review the case as a special prosecutor. So protesters went, they formed the circle at Jackson's home and Desmond's dad shouted, asking him if he really is the mayor. And he said, he's going to have to kill me to shut my mouth. Um, protesters ar- yelled, arrest Garcia. And Jackson didn't make an appearance at the demonstration. It's unclear he w- whether he was home or not. You know, it's been four months since this this killing, and we don't have real answers about it. Uh, you know, Attorney General Dave Yost just took over the investigation last week. I'm a little bit surprised at how long these things are taking. I don't think Cleveland was doing it. I think because of the consent decree, the protocol is that the county does it. But you would expect to have some answers now. This is very suspicious. Garcia was off duty. There was some kind of chase involved. It's very, very um, shady how this went down. So you can understand the frustration. I do think it's interesting in the age of COVID, how people are protesting now at public officials' houses. I mean, we had when Amy Acton was health director, people protested at her house. A lot of people were outraged about that. But if they're not at the office and Jackson isn't at City Hall because of COVID, you know, if you want to get their attention, you kind of have to go to their house, right? Right. I don't think you're going to have a Zoom protest and hope that they log in. So um, I guess they've got to show up there. But yeah, Franklin, this was in April and the 17 year old boy were at a convenience store and Brooklyn Center. And Garcia was not in his police uniform. He was on his way to his shift. He confronted this duo about stealing items from a box truck. Then he left the convenience store. Then Franklin and his teenager got in a car and followed them. And then the idea, the police have said that either Franklin or the teen pointed a gun at Garcia as they drove next to each other. And then Garcia fired shots. One struck Franklin in the head and his car crashed into the fence at Riverside Cemetery. So this is not your not that there is an average police shooting, but this does seem very different. And he's off duty. So there's no body camera footage. So it's going to take forensics to figure it out. It is a little intimidating, I imagine, when you're at home with your family to have a bunch of protesters out front of your house, you know, demanding you you do things. But you kind of understand it because if you're taking the, the protest to where the mayor works, he's working at home. It's this week in the CLE. Maple Heights has filed a fascinating lawsuit against Netflix and Hulu that could have national ramifications if it is successful. Jane Cahoon, what does the Cleveland suburb want? Well, they want Netflix and Hulu to pay fees because their services rely on Internet technology in the city, which they say is in the public rights of way. So they filed this lawsuit in federal court in Cleveland this month. And as you said, it's being watched around the state and maybe even nationally because other communities have done the same thing in other states. And they've requested that it be a class action so that other communities could possibly join. But it basically says, apparently that this fee has been in Ohio law since 2007. It says that the streaming companies have failed to pay Maple Heights this video service provider fee, which is like 5% of the company's gross revenues 
they each make from from customers there. So as I said, it's been in Ohio law, and and according to Ohio law, Netflix and Hulu Hulu are also supposed to fill out paperwork with the Department of Commerce to so to get authorization to provide video services in the state, according to the lawsuit, and they didn't do that. So the they want they want those fees. Well, what's interesting about this is they are doing business inside the borders of of Maple Heights, and and it does seem to apply. The the most surprising part of this lawsuit to me is that Maple Heights was the first to think of this. I know. Well, <laughs> I I know they've had real revenue challenges there, um, and so they're probably looking for you know ways to get every dollar that's coming to them and. Somebody smart there was aware of this and decided to pursue it. I, you know. Yeah, it seems like this has a good shot. I mean, when you think about the way television is fractured, I mean, for a while there, the, the city's got cable franchise fees because they had to license the cable companies to come in. But as with the explosion of broadband where people do everything a la carte, it's a little bit surprising that all of these people that are that are doing business in Ohio and in cities aren't paying something to the city and state for the privilege. So I, I can imagine there's quite a bit of nervousness on the part of the streaming networks. Of course, if they if Maple Heights is successful, it's not like Netflix and Hulu will eat that cost. They will surely have rate increases to pass it along to the consumer. But it could be a new source of revenue for all the cash-strapped cities across the way. I'm a little bit surprised that the Ohio Municipal League seeing this hasn't jumped into it to kind of coordinate it, but uh, a salute to Maple Heights for being uh, proactive and trying to come up with some revenue. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The Cleveland Marathon was a virtual this year, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of a road race. I know, Laura Johnson, you've run in these. I don't get it, but it's planning to have it in person in 2021, which is also a little bit questionable because of what we've learned about breathing the plumes of people exhaling. What do we know about how this would work? Would the runners have to wear masks or are they counting on us all to have a vaccine by the time they get around to the running? I don't know if they expect us to have a vaccine, but the idea is that, yes, they've got a date on the calendar. So they want some people to register for it now. They've got an early bird deal, 75 bucks for the full marathon and $65 for the half going on until September 5th, which is really cheap to run a marathon, actually. So if you're interested, I would go sign up now. I don't know if you can get your money back if it gets canceled. That's a a big question mark. But um, to be clear, I've never run a a full marathon. I've never run a half marathon. So I've just done, I think that the biggest race I've ever done is a 10K. But people love these races because you're with it, there's there's this feeling of adrenaline and energy and excitement that you're like running this big race and people are watching you and they're cheering for you at the end and there's an announcer and there's bands and music and it's really fun and like I'm sorry but going out for a run by yourself I don't know how you do 26 miles if you do not have people cheering you on with the cowbells and the signs so like God bless them if people can do that if, if I think if you're going to run a marathon you wait until you can safely run one with people around you. I might be putting you on the spot. You might not know the answer, but how did it work virtually? Did you notify somebody, okay, I'm starting now, and then keep track of when you completed? Was there any verification process? I'm not going to speak for the marathon itself. I don't know. There's been a lot of virtual runs going on, and it's pretty much just the honor system. Like, you wanted to do this. We'll still send you the T-shirt, so go out and do it. 
<laughs> so so we'll have to, it'll be interesting to see if they require people to wear the sports mask you know under armor has a sports mask for people well, who run and i have seen a couple races actually taking place um i've seen the, the picture show up on facebook and stuff and and people are running they're running without masks i i guess they're starting them so they're not all in a corral uh, they're starting further apart because you know when you have those bibs, you don't your time doesn't start until you cross the start line. So you could space everybody six feet apart and tell everybody stay away from each other on the course. I mean, you do not you do not have to run in a pack. So I mean, but t- having thousands, tens of thousands of people downtown would be really impossible unless there's a, a fix. I would think. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, guys, we're back at it. Another week full of news. Maybe, just maybe, the county health board will get Mike DeWine's memo and start being more public about which schools have the coronavirus. But I'm not betting on that. (laughs) Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back Tuesday with another discussion of the latest news. (laughs) 